verses. You can find that uh, in a Bible. You can also find that just by Googling Luke 12, and those verses will come right up. And I want to jump right into what Jesus here is telling the apostles. He's talking about religious persecution. Now, let me say, when we talk about religious persecution, we're talking about a certain category of suffering. Irrational anger that would be directed at God's people just because of their faith in God and their following of Him. Now, the key word here is irrational and because of their faith. We have to be careful. Not all anger against us or not all agitation or persecution is necessarily religious, right? I mean, if you're driving down Danbury Road and you cut somebody off and uh, they give you a nice gesture to let you know that they're not very fond of you cutting them off, you might go, wow, they really don't love the Lord, do they? They're persecuting me because of my Christian faith. And in reality, they're persecuting you because you're bad driving. Or maybe you call in sick at work and, you know, you make your way down to the beach and have a nice picnic at the beach and the boss finds out you did that and maybe there's a consequence at work because of that. That's not religious persecution. That's, that's called, we just need to change our work ethic a little bit. And so religious persecution is a, is a particular type of suffering. It's also very irrational. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the message. It's irrational from the perspective of it's not like there's something that can necessarily be done to mitigate religious suffering and religious persecution. Frankly, it's very spiritually driven. It's demonically driven. And Jesus talks about it here in this passage. So I want to jump right in. I want to give you about five or six things that we should be. We're going to call these the bees. And then we'll talk about how we can be encouraged because of what God does for us. So here's things that we do, we should do. And then here's what God does for us. And we're going to find them in this passage on Luke 12. I want to jump right in. The first one is be vigilant. Be vigilant. There are times when people will be irrationally angry with you. Irrationally angry. Again, the context of the passage is religious persecution. You get verse 4, did you hear it? They killed the body. That's all the way at the extreme. Verse 9, they pressure someone to deny that Jesus is their Savior. Verse 11, they're dragged before the synagogue. That's the idea of going before a trial where they're going to pressure you to change your faith. And so, peppered within this, you have words of vigilance, words of watching. For example, verse 1 says, beware. Verse 15, beware. Verse 35 and 37, beware. Verse 38, watching. Verse 46, look out. Verse 54, see. This whole passage is about religious suffering and being careful, being mindful that it can actually take place in the world and may bring pressure in your life. And so the point to appreciate here is a rather simple one. It's this. God's people have to learn how to navigate the waters of religious persecution. This is not necessarily something that will just pass on over all people. Jesus tells us to anticipate that there's going to be some adversity, there's going to be some irrational anger. Now, I want to give the flip side of this first. There's some good news about this too, and it's this. When you read cover to cover in Scripture, there are times when God's people have what I call irrational favor. In other words, they didn't do anything good, but they are given a remarkable favor by certain people. And this is all over Scripture. For example, when Moses is drawn out of the water by the daughter of Pharaoh, that is irrational favor. He did nothing. God put it into the princess's heart 
to give pity and favor to that young little baby floating in the Nile. What does it mean when it says, Daniel found favor in the eyes of the king? That means Daniel really didn't do anything special. God put that in the heart of the king to show Daniel favor. Joseph found favor in the eyes of the king. How about there when the story of Esther, when all those women are passed over, but the king sets eyes on Esther? It's not just because she looked a certain way. No, 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 no. It's that God put it into the king's heart to choose Esther so she could be queen, so the people of God could be delivered by his grace. The apostle Paul In Scripture, there are times he just has irrational favor. He pulls into a port and people just feed him. And we're not talking about Christian people. There are times in your life where maybe you've experienced this. And I can tell you, I have. There are times you just have irrational favor. And you walk out of a room and you say, you know, I just think God let that happen. God put it in that person's heart to have favor on me. Or God put it in the person's heart to have favor on the church. Or my brother or sister in Christ. So a lot of times, God will put it in people's hearts to be favorable towards you as a Christian. That is irrational favor. That is the gift of God. But the flip side is also true. And there are times people are just irrationally angry with something you've done or haven't done. And it's really no fault of your own. That's religious persecution. Religious persecution is irrational in the sense. I hear people say things like this. And to some degree, there's truth here. But people say, you know... If the church would just behave itself, the world would love the church much more, you know? Or if Christians would just live the gospel in love, fewer people would, you know, be agitated with the church. And I don't doubt that for a second. If the church behaved itself, more people would like, I don't doubt that for a minute. But you know what? The church could love the world just like Jesus loved the world. And what happened to Jesus? He was put on the cross. there's the word again, it's irrational, meaning there's nothing you've done to deserve this. You are just the, the direct object of somebody's ire because of your faith and because of the way you live in Christ. There are times, and the whole point here is, there are times as God's people, we need to be aware, people are irrationally angry because of your faith. Now, thankfully, that's not all the time. Thankfully, hopefully, it's far and few between, depending on the culture we're in. Paul said, indeed, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Get the first word, indeed. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You notice what Jesus didn't say? Blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus there is assuming that at some point his disciples are going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And again, righteousness' sake. Not because they cut somebody off on the road and somebody got anger, but because they're living a certain way in Christ and people are upset by that. Hebrews 13, 3, Remember those in prison as if you are together with them in prison and being mistreated with your, yourselves with them. In other words, some people in this culture are in prison because of their faith. I'll spare you the stories, but you know, the new persecuted, the, uh, the Catholic scholar, Antonio Soshi, who wrote The uh, New Persecuted, you know, he tells that two-thirds of all Christian martyrs died in the 20th century. Did you know that? We have these stories like, you know, Christians battling lions, you know, in the first 300 years of Christianity. In the first 300 years of Christianity, anywhere between, oh, it might have been 10,000, as high as 100,000 Christians were martyred for their faith. You know how many Christians were martyred for their faith? Like in 2009? 
176,000 Christians. In other words, more Christians were martyred in 2009 than the first 300 years of Christianity. You read about this stuff in a history book and you think, well, that happened way back then. That would probably never happen today. Yeah, never, it's not happening today, maybe in our own backyard. But it's happening all over around the world. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, remember those that are in prison. Remember those that are suffering. And remember that you are one with them. And we want to do that here at RBC. Number one, we've got to be vigilant. Number two, we've got to be honest. And by that I mean, as Christians, we want to share our faith. We don't want to sell our faith. And there is a difference. Christianity, of course, is evangelistic in the sense that we are called to share the gospel and share Christ with people. But I want you to notice here that when Jesus shares the faith, he doesn't hold back from the reality of what that faith is going to look like. He doesn't try to sell Christianity with all the benefits and then hide the difficult things in the background. When you go and buy a washing machine and maybe it's used and you're picking it up on the marketplace, you know, and they're trying to sell this to you and there you are in the garage and they're like, look at these hoses. The hoses are brand new, you know, but they're hiding the rust on the bottom with the foot like that, you know. What's, what's happening to any salesperson, they try to market the assets and hide the liabilities, but Jesus will have none of this and neither will his disciples. As Christians, we share the gospel. We're not selling the gospel. We're honest about what the gospel entails. And if you become a Christian, that does not mean all your problems go away. Because that's kind of what we feel like maybe in in, in American culture. Become a Christian and you'll probably get a better job. Give your life to Jesus and your family will be restored. Dedicate yourself to the Lord's service and get on the scale the next day and you'll find out you lost five pounds, you know. Like every problem in your life is going to be fixed when you come to know Jesus. And Jesus here says, if you come to know me, the body they may kill, my truth abideth still, as Martin Luther said. He's not selling anything here. What's he doing? He's sharing. And I think the church should have the same posture that we as Christians, we want to be honest when people are, quote unquote, investigating the faith of Christianity, not just putting all the bells and whistles out there and hiding the challenges of the faith. Number three, we as Christians should be guarded in this sense. Be guarded. We need to bear in mind that the world has a fickle relationship with Christianity. Fickle. Verse 1 is a, a great verse. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people gathered together, they were trampling on one another. You've got to get the picture here. There are so many people that are excited about who Jesus is, they're literally trampling on each other. They're stepping on each other. They're pushing each other. And in a few chapters, what are those same people going to be doing? They're going to be crying what? Crucify him, crucify him. Do you see, it's, it's interesting that at this moment in Jesus' life, he's surrounded by people that think he's the cat's meow. He's the greatest. He, eh, oh yeah, Jesus, let's put him on the donkey and ride him into the city. At this moment in Jesus' life, everybody looking at him, with few exceptions, love him. But he knows these same people, in just a matter of months, are going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. The world has a very fickle relationship with Jesus. One minute they like him, the next minute they don't. They had a fickle relationship with Paul, and they have a fickle relationship with Christianity in general. And so the church just needs to be, you as God's people, we need to just be aware of this. It's the experience of Jesus. 
The gospel teaches that the favor of people can spin on a dime, depending on what's going on in the background spiritually. It's the Exodus. Remember in the Exodus when Israel moved into Egypt? They were loved by the Egyptians. I mean, Joseph rose. He took care of the Egyptians. The Egyptians took care of him. And then there's one verse that totally changes the story. You remember what it was? There is a king that arose that knew not Joseph. And the whole story turns for the worse. And the children of Israel are imprisoned. Daniel is a high, high ranking official in the Persian culture. I mean, way up the food chain. We call him an untouchable in that culture. Ah, but nobody's untouchable, right? There's a plot of jealousy before you know it. Everybody turns against Daniel and he's cast into the lion's den. They had a fickle relationship with Moses. They got a fickle relationship with Joseph. They got a fickle relationship with Daniel. And I think it can even happen on a one-on-one level. And it happens fast. Just like when David would play his instrument and calm the soul of Saul. As soon as he stopped strumming, Saul would pick up a spear and try to throw it at David. That's a fickle relationship. All that to say, the people that are throwing Jesus on their shoulders here are the same people or they're going to throw him on a cross come chapter 21 and 22. We just want to remember, we don't grow bitter by any means. We pray, we love people, but we have to bear in mind there's a fickle relationship with the world and Christianity. Number four, be wise, be wise. Religious persecution can come from many different places and spaces and frankly, different groups. In verse 2, verse 1, it says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's how Luke writes it. But I want to give you the other writers. You ready for this? Look at Matthew 15, verse 16. Be, same passage, by the way, but look at the different groups that are addressed. In Luke, it's the Pharisees. And if we're not careful, we're going to say, Ah, the Pharisees, they're the ones that are going to get aggressive, right? But Jesus doesn't say that here. What does he say in Matthew? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus identifies not one but two groups. These are antithetical groups. The Pharisees are religiously conservative. They're also morally and politically, we would say, conservative. The Sadducees are the progressive party. They're a little bit more on the left. The left and the right plot together to trap Jesus. These two groups do not like each other. These two groups so dislike each other, there's a passage in Acts 23 where they try to trap Paul, and Paul talks about the resurrection. That's all he does. He brings up the resurrection. They start fighting with each other. You get the picture. They're throwing punches at each other because they have to be separated. The Pharisees and the Sadducees really don't like each other, but the one thing they agree on, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And then you bring in another party here in Mark 8. It's called the Herodians. Beware of the leaven of Herod. That's the Herodian party, another party in ancient Israel. They supported one of the local leaders there, Herod. I think the point the gospel writers are making is whether it's the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and we can go on and on, the Essenes, the Zealots, just keep going right down the line. At some point, they're opposing the gospel. And... Uh, Opposition comes from many quarters and many groups. Opposition will come from a religious group. It can come from a secular group. It can come from the right. It can come from the left. We have two parties, three parties, very different ideologies. 
The gospel is opposed from the right and the left. So I'm just going to throw my cards on the table here. I do get concerned when the church of God starts throwing its lot in with any one political party. As if that political party is going to be the savior of the church. As if we're not going to have a fickle relationship with that party for some reason. The gospel is opposed from the right, it's opposed from the left, because the gospel is other. And I, I know the narrative. I hear the narratives just like you do. If Jesus was here today, he'd probably be a Republican. If Jesus was here today, he'd probably be in the Green Party. And we pick verses and kind of attach those verses to what we want to do. In reality, if Jesus was here today, they'd send a delegation to oppose him. Because that's what they did in the first century. We want to be wise. That's the point to appreciate here. Be wise as Christians. Don't think that there's any one worldly group, right? Secular group that has the same interest as the gospel. It's just not true. All right, number four, be faithful. Be faithful. Persecution, religious persecution, can create pressure. And I might have wanted to put this in italics or something to mark out what I'm saying. To be spiritual but not Christian. It's very important. When you see verses 8 through 9, which we're going to walk through these a little closer in just a moment. But I tell you, everyone that acknowledges me before men, the Son of Men will acknowledge him before the angels of God. That kind of language. You know what, that's, you know what they're pressuring the Christians to do? They're not pressuring the Christians to deny God. Nobody is telling these people to become atheists. And nobody is telling these people they even need to worship the pagan gods. They're telling them you need to become religious, but not Christian. The push here is to become spiritual, but not Christian. Very similar to what we see in the book of Hebrews. Where in Hebrews, they're fine if they fall back on the Old Testament law. But as long as we continue to promote this Jesus stuff, ah, that's where the persecution comes. The seven churches in the book of Revelation, there's a promise to all of them that overcome. That's a beautiful word, by the way. To the overcomer, I will, it will walk in robes of white. To the overcomer, they will eat of the hidden manna. I don't even know what hidden manna is. I'd sure like some hidden manna, though. That sounds pretty good. The overcomer is promised all these things in the book of Revelation. The overcomer is the one that makes it all the way to the end with their faith intact. Not their faith in God. Their faith in Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't have doubts. We're in a secular age. Of course we have doubts. But we keep our faith intact throughout those doubts. The overcomer has promised things. Be faithful. Be faithful to your Christian calling. And the last B here, before we turn the corner, is it's a good one. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. And I just want to give you two thoughts. Thought number one is this. It's obvious from the text. We're at a macro view here. Your faith and my faith does not shelter us from all adversity. We already mentioned that. The idea that if I come to Jesus, all my problems are go away, or it's like I become like the green lantern and I can put a force field around myself and it's impenetrable. Our faith in Christ does not eliminate all our problems. But, and here's the but, God is very present with his people, you and me, in this adversity. And that's the point that we want to highlight here for a minute. Look at how present God is. He's so present that if you get dragged before a council, verse 12 says, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The disciples don't have time to rehearse a speech. 
They're getting all kinds of questions peppered at them. There's like to some degree no way to prepare for this kind of inquisition, is there? And Jesus says, I am so present with you that I will put the words in your mouth at the very moment you need them. Persecution is a mystery in this regard. God allows it to come into our lives sometimes, but he takes it very seriously and he will hold the persecutor responsible for their actions. If you ever read the story of the conversion of Paul, Pastor Richard preached on that passage recently. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Anybody know? Me. Well, how did Saul persecute Jesus? Jesus is ascended. This is after the resurrection. What, did he pick up a stick and hit Jesus in heaven? No. Saul was not persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting the what? The church. Put your hand on the church, and the Savior takes that seriously. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? That's how seriously Jesus takes persecution. Read the book of Habakkuk, where God is going to allow, for various reasons, the Babylonians to come into Israel, and they're going to create some havoc. But then there's a whole passage about how they will be held accountable by God for this. Exodus 3.7, the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people. I hear them crying, and their, concerning, their suffering concerns me. What a beautiful passage about God's concern. Boy, we don't forget the blood of Abel still cries out from the ground. How about this? You know, in the book of Revelation, there are souls of the martyrs that are under the altar. They're crying, how long till you avenge our blood, O Lord? I don't even know what that means. How long until you avenge our blood? They're under the altar. I mean, I know kind of what it means, but there's some things there to the mysterious. You know what it means, though? It means Jesus hears the cries of those martyrs. He hears our prayers. He hears when we cry out in pain and suffering. Be encouraged. Persecution is not a sign that God has abandoned you. And when you feel an irrational anger coming because of something you believe, let that be a mark. No, God is with me. He's present with me. All right. Now, how can we be encouraged? I'll give you a handful of ways. I actually stuck them on one slide just so we can see the, the whole outline here. Now, let me just walk through these. Number one, I want you to know that God reveals. God reveals. In other words, despite religious persecution, the truth will ultimately prevail. The truth will ultimately be revealed. Uh, Tina read verses 2 and 3. I hope you listen carefully to these. He, the, 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 the Lord says, Nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on housetops. Now, that's a hard passage for this reason. It could be positive or it could be negative. There's some kind of revealing. Something's done in secret that is now going to go public. It could be negative. It could be that there's so much hypocrisy people have, and someday that hypocrisy is going to be revealed. Everybody can see the hypocrisy. Or it could be the whispering on the housetops, that the gospel is being whispered on the housetops because there's so much persecution, but someday it's going to be revealed everywhere. In other words, the spoken word is just going to go public. Either way, the same thing is being said. In the end, God's truth prevails. God's truth prevails. The hidden things are uncovered. That's the idea. 
Remember when David committed all those atrocities and nobody knew, nobody knew, but God knew and it was revealed. Or on a positive side, that poor widow that threw the two mites into the tray, nobody knew, nobody, but Jesus knew and he made it public. The hypocrisy will someday go public. The righteous acts that you do, that will also go public. God reveals. That's our, that's our encouragement here. He reveals. There's an old story about Charles Spurgeon I like. Spurgeon's a pastor. Uh, he's an old Baptist pastor in England in the uh, previous century. And uh, what they used to do, a lot of the rich people, of which he was kind of upper class too, he made, he made a good salary, had a, had, a, had a lot going on in business and in ministry. And what they would do is they would have chickens. They would give their eggs to the poor. That was pretty common to do. So you take your eggs. If you were kind of a, a church-going person, you'd walk around and give them to the poor people. But Spurgeon never did that. He and his wife would sell their eggs. And everybody in town, especially the people who didn't like Spurgeon, they'd be all over him for this, you know? Uh, they're talking about, oh, he's stingy, he's selfish, you know? He's not looking out for the poor. And Spurgeon never said a word about that. He died. His wife continued to sell those eggs. And then upon the death of his wife, it was discovered that for decades he was selling those eggs and he was giving it to two widows in the city of England and was taking care of them because of the sale of those eggs. He never said a word his whole life. Neither did his wife. It was only after. God reveals. There's a great verse in the Bible. Things done in secret shall be made known. And the hypocrisy and the persecution goes public. The gospel whispered goes public. God reveals. Number two, God judges. God judges. He's the ultimate judge. Verse four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear them that kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, you fear him. God judges. I think there's two applications here. First of all, as Christian people, we should live in light of God. He's the ultimate judge. He's the ult- his, his, ver- his verdict in your life is really the only one that matters. I think I told you this. That the old ba- I love the old Babe Ruth story. When a uh, pitcher threw a strike and Babe Ruth was batting. And it was a borderline pitch. And everybody, all 50,000 fans, boo, boo, you know, it was in Yankee Stadium. And Babe Ruth, with a little smug smile on his face, turns to the umpire and says something like, 50,000 people think you're wrong. And, of course, the umpire says, yeah, but my opinion's the only one that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Live your life in light of standing the day you stand before God that people are going to say things in this life, but let your conscience be clean that when you stand before God, you've done the right thing. Because boo they may, in the end, his is the only judgment that matters. This also has another application. This is not just directed at us Christians. It's also directed at God judging the persecutor. That when people bite down on the neck of the righteous they are biting down to their own destruction. There is an accountability for that, for the persecutor. I read about a, uh, this is cool, I read about this, these Canadian farmers and uh, their sheeps they were being attacked by the local wolves. They were pulling them off one by one. And so I think it was back in the 1980s, they invented these collars to put on the neck of their sheep 
their collars that were, that were like bladders and they were infused with poison. And so when the wolf came up and bit down on the neck of the sheep, poison would immediately get into his mouth and he'd back off and run into the woods and apparently die some kind of death there in a natural wild. Biting down on the neck of the sheep to their own destruction. When I think about this passage, that's something that comes to mind. That the persecutor bites down, Satan even, bites down on the neck of the sheep of God's people, the neck of God's people, but to his own destruction. Zechariah 2.8. You want a memory verse? How's this one? Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Number three, God cares. God cares. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable than the many sparrows. There are times you feel like God has lost sight of you, right? Like, uh, I don't think parents do these kind of psychological tricks anymore, but I know they all did when I was a kid. If I ran ahead of my father, you know, he would just hide, so I'd lose him. That's, I know. He was a good dad. I feel like I'm putting out to be, you know. I'd, I'd be in the woods, we'd be hiking, and he'd be like, don't go too far. And I'd keep going too far. He'd, he'd tuck behind a tree, and I'd cry, and I'd learn my lesson, and I'd hold his hand, you know. I mean, you know, you're not allowed to do those psychological tricks on kids anymore. They're very effective, though, uh, back in the 70s. You, there's times you feel like God has just lost you, you know, in the woods or in the marketplace. But we learn here, even the, even has his eyes on the sparrows. He knows the number of hairs on the head which is very impressive for you, I'm sure. Not for me, but for you. You know, uh, the sparrows here are the cheapest commodity sold in the market. They're food for the poor. Two are sold for one penny. A penny here is about a day's worth. In other words, you could make enough to... to, A sparrow would be about 15 minutes worth of worth in the ancient world. If you worked for 15 minutes, you'd make enough to buy a sparrow. That's how cheap they were. And yet God has his eyes on that sparrow. And the numbers of hairs on the head. I don't know if this is true, but I read this week that a blonde person has 145,000 hairs on the head on average. I don't know who counted these. If you have darker hair, you have about 120,000. And red hair is approximately 90,000. And God numbers the hairs on the head, the text tells us. He cares. His eyes are on us. He never loses us. Remember that passage where Mary and Joseph, they lose Jesus? Jesus never loses them. (laughs) He never loses us. By the way, there's a whole sermon here about a Christian's relationship to animals that I won't go into. It says, are you not more valuable than they? If you're ever wondering, what is a Christian view of animals? Number one, because God created animals, we respect animals. We never harm animals unnecessarily. We would stand against animal abuse. And at the same time, because people are created in God's image, we do not put animals on the same level of people. The text here says, are you not more valuable? Jesus here assumes someone created in God's image is more valuable than the sparrow. Number four, God promises. God promises. Verse eight, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledged me before men, the son of man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. We don't have time to totally unpack this, but I think it's important here to point out 
Jesus is not saying you need to say everything that comes to your mind all the time. There is a time to be silent. In other words, he's not saying that in every conversation you need to mention his name. He's not saying at work you need to stand up and put your hand up and make a declaration, though you may want to do that. That's up to you. But the point here is that when we're questioned, we are not going to deny Christ. We're going to make sure we hold fast and we're not going to violate our conscience in how we live and we're not going to violate our conscience uh, in in our declarations. Just a thought, my friends. Don't ever violate your conscience, religiously or otherwise. When you violate your conscience, you weaken yourself. You weaken yourself. You know what happens when a person violates their conscience? When you say something that you really don't believe to be true, when you, when you make some confession, you are now brought to the intersection of two decisions. Number one, you either really believe that, or number two, you have to admit you were a coward in that moment. Admitting you were a coward in that moment is psychologically too much for most people. So you know what they do? They change their view. And they just say, well, I guess I really meant that. And it changes your view. It's bad to violate your conscience. Never violate your conscience. It's not God's will that every Christian take to the public square and say all the things that we believe to be true, though it is for some. There is a time to be silent. We recognize that. But it's never God's will for a Christian to stand and affirm something they don't believe to be true or to deny Christ. Number six. Oh, actually, real quick. What does it mean here? Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's the famous blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, A lot of views on this, by the way. Some people believe that it's talking about Jesus during his earthly ministry, kind of like what's happening here. They're attributing the works of Jesus to Satan, saying Satan is working through Jesus. Some think that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Others believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is is people are saying things against Jesus here, but the Spirit is going to work through the apostles. So slandering the apostles might be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We don't really know what it is. Uh, We do know that if you're concerned that you've committed some unpardonable sin, you definitely haven't because you're actually concerned about your spiritual state. But in all these verses, verses 8 right through verse 12, it's the same point. How we respond to persecution is no trivial matter. It's not a trivial matter. It's important to think about how we're going to respond. Number five, God empowers. Verse 11 and 12, last one. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. What a beautiful promise God gives for us. You know what it means? It means God will give you the words and he'll give you the wisdom you need right exactly at the moment that you need it. This is not saying... That spontaneous preaching or teaching is better than well-studied. It's not saying that. It's not saying don't prepare for things the best you can. But in those crisis moments that you can't prepare for, whatever they are, if you're a Christian, those crisis moments that you can't prepare for, God will deliver wisdom right in the nick of time when you need it. I think about the crossing of the Red Sea. When Moses and the children of Israel come to the sea... And there's the Egyptians pressing down on their backs. 
I'm picturing the Israelites turning around and starting to see the Egyptians come over the mountaintop and they're moved with fear. And it's at that very moment that God gives the word and Moses' staff goes into the air and the waters part. God gives the deliverance at the very moment it's needed. There's Daniel in the lion's den. I'm not sure what Daniel did in the lion's den. I don't know if he cuddled up in the corner. I don't know if he pet the lion. I don't know if he brought a steak in with him. I have no idea. But we do know it was in that very evening that Daniel found the grace that he needed for that moment. Or we think about Elijah under the tree, starving. Doesn't know what he's going to eat. Doesn't even have the strength to stand up. And at that very moment, the ravens fly in and they feed the prophet. That is the perfect timing of God. You know what God is teaching us here? And it has a lot to do with the passage coming up about not worrying. Don't worry. Don't over-worry of yourself about things like persecution because God will give you the grace and the strength and the empowerment you need right when you need it. He will not let you down. He will not leave you or forsake you. God's timing is always perfect. And it will be in your life. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace, your care for us, your concern. We're thankful that here in the United States and the West, we are free to worship you. We can be here today free of persecution. This is a blessing. This is a gift. Sometimes we take this for granted. But then passages like this remind us of the reality of persecution, that this can and does happen. And it certainly happens to our brothers and sisters around the globe. Christians of different denominations and stripes that have to endure a lot of pressure because they claim the name of Christ. Give them grace today. We pray for that persecuted church. That you would give her the strength and hem her in and give them the joy that they so richly have in Christ. And for us at RBC, help us, Lord, to continue to keep our faith intact to grow in our faith, that in those pressured moments when we feel like somebody wants us to say something that's against our conscience, help us to pull back and be wise. And Lord, I pray at the moments when we should name your name and we don't, remind us that how we treat those, those times is no trivial matter. We commit ourselves to you we realize that you will use persecution that comes to the church, just as you use the persecution in Jesus' life to bring about the salvation of the world. So Tertullian, the church father, said, the seeds, um, the, 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 the suffering and persecution is the seeds of the church, and we grow through that. So all glory belongs to you in Jesus' name. Amen.